Welcome to Mortification of Spin, a casual conversation about things that count. With Carl Truman, Todd Pruitt, and Amy Bird. Mortification of Spin is a weekly podcast from the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. Let's join this week's conversation. Well, you are listening to the Mortification of Spin. My name is Todd Pruitt. I'm pastor of Covenant Presbyterian Church in the beautiful Shenandoah Valley, and I'm joined as always by the housewife theologian, Amy Bird, and by Grove City College's own Carl Truman. And uh, we are excited today. Uh, We always have special guests, and today is no exception. Uh, Our guest is Dr. Kevin Van Hooser. Uh, Dr. Van Hooser is the uh, research professor of systematic theology at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School. He is also a prolific author, uh, everything from, uh, from more technical um, academic volumes to very pastoral, um, more, more popular audience books. Uh, uh, and so he, he produces uh, both kinds of books, and we're thankful for that. Uh, but Dr. Van Hooser, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for the invitation. Well, your newest book is called Purers and Doers, A Pastor's Guide to Making Disciples through scripture and doctrine. Now, you know, that, that, uh, that subtitle, you know, just resonates with a lot of us pastors, particularly those of us in the reformed tradition who, uh, like to fancy ourselves as caring a lot about, uh, doctrine. And if you're a pastor, of course you want to make disciples. So I was immediately drawn to the book, uh, not just because you wrote it, but I, I was very interested to hear, uh, your thesis and, uh, where you were going to go in unpacking this idea in terms of, of how we make disciples and doing it through scripture and doctrine. Now, I think, I think any good pastor is going to say, well, well, yes, of course, in making disciples, uh, you know, there, there's, there's a doctrinal element, and of course you want to use uh, the Bible, but how that's done exactly um, probably is, is very, very wide-ranging. So uh, as, I wonder if you could just kind of talk a moment about uh, the, the, the thesis of the book, what, what you're aiming at, um, uh, and, and what kind of, might be um, not unheard of, because I don't know that you're trying to reinvent the wheel, but might be kind of fresh in what you're trying to bring to the discussion in terms of how the church makes disciples. Okay, thanks. Um, well, I've been teaching systematic theology for over 20 years uh, in a seminary context, so I have a captive audience of pastors. <laughs> but I don't want them to be there simply because they have to be, because it, I do teach required courses. But I, I've uh, discovered over the years that some people harbor the suspicion that theology and doctrine uh, don't really have as much to do with the pastoral ministry as other courses one might take in seminary. And so for a long time, I've been, I've been on this hobby horse that, no, doctrine is good for discipleship. Doctrine is necessary for reading the Bible well. Uh, doctrine is one way that you grow mature Christians. And so I think that's in large part the thesis. There are lots of sub-theses as well. For example, there's the, I guess the, well, I do speak it, so I can't say it's an unspoken premise. I actually say that I'm not sure the church is prioritizing discipleship as much as it ought to be. So, mm-hmm. again, if we, if you want to get into the historical occasion and the background of this book, Part of it is my perception that in our country at the moment, 
there is a kind of Christianity, a picture of Christianity out there uh, where discipleship seems to be optional. And, um, mm -hmm. you know, it's been actually named as a kind of non-discipleship Christianity. And so uh, one of the motives and one of the theses of the book is that such a thing isn't possible. If you are a Christian, you are to be a follower of Jesus. And that means you can't simply admire him. You can't simply hear his words. You've got to, to build on them. You've got to grow. You've got to walk in the truth of the gospel. Mm -hmm. and, and tell me a little bit, tell us a little bit about the line that you draw then between um, doctrine and discipleship, this, this desire to raise up Christians who actually follow Christ or seek to follow after Christ, to follow his example, to, to, to live upon his, his words, to embody his righteousness and his love. Um, what, where, what's that line that, can, that, that, that draws that real strong connection between that end, that goal that we want, and doctrine? Right. Well, the title of the book is drawn from Jesus' own teaching about the difference between foolishness and wisdom. So I think the line that I'm trying to draw is between doctrine and Christian wisdom. And, uh, you know, the wise person is the one who builds upon the rock. And that means doing what Jesus says, not just listening to it and even mulling it over or even memorizing it. That's not enough. You know, it's um, if you want to get fit, and fitness is a big theme in this book, fitness, the fitness of the body of Christ. But if you want to get fit, you have to do more than read diet books. <laughs> You've got to follow the diet, right? So doctrine is instruction for getting fit in Christ. And it's not enough to say, yes, yes, very well formulated. You know, that, that doesn't help you to get fit to say that diets or exercises are very well formulated, you've got to put them into practice. You've got to be a hearer and a doer. And in, and in the same way, it works the other direction as well. So if somebody says, you know, I'm not interested in doctrine. I just want to follow Jesus. Well, which Jesus then? And that's where we get into the doctrine. Exactly. Um, and not just simply which Jesus, which God, what is God like? Uh, God is love, okay. What is love like? There's so many pictures of God and things like love out there that are undisciplined by Scripture. So part of what it means to be a disciple is to learn a particular discipline, and it's the discipline of reading Scripture rightly, of following Scripture and it's the discipline of learning the doctrine that enables you to follow Scripture rightly. You know, one thing I really appreciate about um, this book as a layperson, I'm, you know, I'm not a pastor, and I know you're writing mainly to pastors, but as a layperson, I've really noticed um, a shift in how church members um, think, how they view discipleship. Um, you know, they might think church is important, the worship service you know, is important to go to, but they don't really see discipleship happening in the church. They think that like the real work of discipleship is happening outside of the church and, and maybe the parachurch and, and then all the big conferences. And um, I, I hear language of people talking about how they're discipling other people who don't even go to their church. They might not even belong to a church themselves. And so the whole context of discipleship has been removed from the church. And so there's not really any kind of church as an interpretive community then either. 
And so uh, maybe you could talk a little bit about that. Yeah, that's really interesting, Amy. And uh, look, I'm happy. I'm thrilled that as a layperson, you're reading the book because it is a pastor's guide, but it doesn't mean it's only for pastors. You know, we're all supposed to be disciples. And so it helps to, you know, figure out what that means. So I, I think my perception is like yours, discipleship has been outsourced to some extent from the local church. And one of my Again, one of the theses, one of the arguments I try to make is that the local church is the best place to make disciples who are fit in Christ. In the book, I suggest that a local church is like a local gymnasium. And, you know, I I understand there are parachurch organizations out there doing helpful work. I'm involved in some myself. Um, I'm involved heavily in the C.S. Lewis Institute which is not an academic center for Lewis studies. It's actually a place where lay people get discipled. And they're not trying to replace the church. I think they're, they're, they exist as a service alongside the church. They encourage participation in the church, but their work by them and by other organizations is necessary these days, it seems, because the local church isn't doing it. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, this isn't a terribly new problem. Bill Hull, who wrote a number of books about discipleship 20 years ago, was the one who coined this phrase and put it on my radar, this idea of non-discipleship Christianity, as if that were an option. Mm. One of the, the things that interested me about the book, Kevin, was uh, I think it's a theme in, in, in a way that binds together your more strictly academic work and the work that you've written uh, specifically for a church audience, and that's the the issue of textual interpretation. Mm-hmm. And you've used the the term at least once in in the conversation so far, reading the Bible rightly. Yes, there is a sense in which you know somebody, let's say, converted this week, uh, looks in the phone book or searches online for a church to go and be discipled. That they're going to be confronted with a myriad of churches, all of whom read the Bible in in different ways some more dramatically different than, than others. And I know you've explored this. You explored this in uh, uh, the series of lectures you did at Moore Theological College uh, a few years ago. And it comes up in the book Hearers and Doers when you talk about the role of the, the communion of saints, uh, not simply in, in shaping our behavior, but in, in shaping how we read the Bible and how we read the Christian tradition. I wonder if you could distill the key thoughts of that section down for for our listeners. Well, I think you're right, first of all, Carl, that um, reading the Bible is at the intersection of my pastoral and academic interests. Um, I've thought for years now, really since, you know, my doctoral studies, that one of the key questions the church needs to wrestle with is what does it mean to be biblical? Because as you say, lots of churches uh, profess their being biblical, and they would say that they, you know, give Bible teaching, but they disagree on what the Bible says. And this is the Protestant problem, as you well know, and you've addressed it yourself. So, I've... um, Part of what I want to argue is that people are trained to learn to read scripture well in the context of the local church, which is an interpretive community, which isn't just, you know, a a kind of scholastic entity. It's an interpretive community because 
the local church is a community of hearers and doers. Um, you know, we do things in response to the Lord's command to do the Lord's Supper, for example, in remembrance of him. We gather to learn more about the word. So the local church, both in its learning and listening to sermons and in its very life and practices, is itself an interpretive community. But uh, there are lots of local churches in the phone book, as you rightly point out. So here's where I think knowing something about the history of theology and appreciating the fact that there is only one church of Jesus Christ uh, is crucial. I think the local church must be a Catholic church. That is, it must be aware of uh, other local assemblies down uh, through time and in different cultures. And in, the, in one sense, the local church, it is a real church. It is the Catholic church. Somehow the universality of the church has to be uh, represented by local churches. And so to some extent, I think there's a line in the book where I say to catechize a disciple is to Catholicize a disciple. That is, you're, you're trying to socialize, I suppose we could say in the best term, you're trying to socialize individuals into the one communion of Jesus Christ. I like that. Mm -hmm. I love your phrase, global norming, which sort of <laughs> caught my eye as I was uh, reading through. That's a uh, uh, good, good uh, uh, hook to, to grab people's attention. Well, I'm not surprised that someone who uh, talks at the mortification of spin would like that line. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, terrible puns are asked. <laughs> so, um, so it's really interesting. In chapter two, you, you, you talk about, um, you make some connections with, with uh, you know, wellness and fitness, and, and you have some really interesting insights on uh, the, uh, the, the, the wellness phenomenon. And anybody, of course, now you know, sees it everywhere. All you have to do is spend five minutes on social media to see our, our obsession with, with wellness, whether it's people trying to sell you plexus or essential oils or uh, you know, CrossFit, you know, whatever it may be, it is, it is an obsession. Um, but you talk about how um, uh, there's been a secularization, even a paganization of, of the idea of wellness. Um, kind of unpack a little bit about what you mean there and, and, and how it relates to, to kind of the, the core of what you're trying to communicate in the book. Well, um, so <clears throat> spirituality is not uh, a Christian monopoly, right? Uh, there's a lot of talk about spirituality along with, with wellness, and they often get merged, uh, kind of, so a holistic wellness. I, I think, you know, it has to do with uh, what people are being promised, and it's, it's a kind of gospel of wellness that's out there. And I was stunned this summer. We, we, my wife and I belong to the Chicago Botanic Garden, and we get a newsletter every season. And this summer, a newsletter from the Chicago Botanic Garden, a very secular institution because its business is gardening, um, it was advertising a number of summer classes. And I was, again, stunned by how many of these classes mentioned either mindfulness or wellness. You know, go into nature and... Um, Go into the Japanese forest and sense the oneness, your oneness with the cosmos. 
Mm. What? <laughs> this is Chicago <laughs> Botanic Gardens. You're just supposed to have pretty plants. <laughs> yeah, I mean, stick with, with stick with the script. Yeah. Mm. Um, but so there's this the promise. People know that not all things are well. And so it's a very alluring idea. And as I say in the book, it's big business. I mean, wellness sells. And so the promises that such and such will make you well, this program or, or this medicine, whatever, uh, we've become obsessed, I think, as a society with wellness and, and often associated with physical wellness. Um, so I just felt that I need to call that out because one of the things I think a pastor theologian must do is, yes, teach the scriptures, but also call out the idols and ideologies of our day. Uh, because as I, again, uh, reiterate in this book, I think certain pictures are holding people, congregations captive. And one of the privileges and responsibilities of pastors is to name these powers, to call out these images and confront them with the true gospel, because there is only one gospel. And yes, all things will be well, but only in Christ. Right. I like the part where you're talking about um, the importance of humility to uh, our biblical interpretation. So I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about you know, how we can, as a church, cultivate humility in our Bible interpretation. Well, um, so I think a great question, and I've been talking about humility in the context, especially of biblical hermeneutics for, you know, 20 years. And I think the, the challenge, especially for Protestants, but really for, for, for all Christians, is to know how to get the balance right. On the one hand, we want to preach the gospel with boldness. That's a biblical virtue, boldness for the gospel. The apostles, you know, commend that. But on the other hand, we don't want that boldness to become a kind of self-satisfactory pride. Mm -hmm. And so that the tension to me in biblical interpretation is somehow, you know, threading that needle on the or you know, getting that um, tension right between uh, boldness and humility. Uh, so humility, I take it as an interpretive as well as an intellectual and moral virtue. Mm -hmm. and a virtue is a habit of mind that is more likely to lead you to the truth than away from it. And, you know, when I think about academics in particular, the, the cardinal temptation for an academic is to be so wed to his or her pet idea that, you know, it, it becomes a, like a tragic flaw. Mm. That, um, because it's your idea, you have to protect it. And you're, um, if you aren't open to criticism, you're less likely to get to the truth. And I, I've experienced this for myself. I've had, you know, ideas that I like. And when I submit them to critics, they may not like it. But if I'm not, if I'm not listening and if I'm not humble, if I'm going to stubbornly insist on going with this pet idea, uh, more likely than not, I'm, I'm leading myself away from the truth. Mm. So what I appreciate about Protestants is that they uh, have boldness. Uh, you know, we have our convictions. We're not all Lutherans. We're not all Presbyterians. We're not all Methodists. We have our convictions. And yet, we conduct 
at our best, we conduct discussions about interpretation uh, aware that we're all standing under the authority of the word. And I think standing other, that, pos- that posture of humility, acknowledgement that you may be wrong, standing under is a key condition for understanding. Mm. Scripture. Yeah. And it's hard, it's hard. But Philippians 2 says, have the mind of Christ. And then, it go, and then Paul goes on to talk about Jesus' own uh, disposition to think and to treat others as greater than himself. That's hard. And we're, one of the things our society does to us here in North America is that it makes us super sensitive to status issues. I know we're not Britain. We may not have ranks <laughs> and you know, royal, royalty. With, a whole, with all the hierarchy there, but there's still a thirst and a need, I think, that people have for status. And to become humble, to take on the form of a servant and the mindset of a servant is to willingly uh, opt for a lower status. And I think many people are status anxious. That is, they, they feel like they're not, they're not, they may not be uh, looked up to as they would like. And, and we groom our status carefully on Facebook and other social media. So I really do think humility is a challenge for folk today. It always has been, but maybe even more so in a media-conscious society. And yet, forming people with the mind of Christ, with this disposition to be humble, even about their biblical interpretations, that is part and parcel of making disciples fit. I a, on Sunday evening, I, I preached. My pastor's away at the moment. Asked if I would fill the pulpit. So I preached Sunday evening, Kevin. And uh, afterwards, I was standing at the door, and of course, people are filing past and shaking my hand, etc. And one of the young men in the church came up to me and, and started talking to me about a friend of his who's just become a Christian, but is convinced that all he needs to do is read his Bible and pray by himself. He doesn't need to be involved in in what we would call the visible church in any way, shape, or form. How would you go about persuading somebody like that, that no, being part of the, the community of the church is important? And, and what strategies might you suggest to a local congregation to make that a more obvious truth to both to their own people and to the people who might wander through the door on a, on a Sunday? Yes. Um well, again, we're in a nation of, of uh, you know, rugged individuals, at least historically speaking. I think of Abraham Lincoln. <laughs> he wasn't exactly Catholic in his reading of Scripture. Um, and so there was something, I guess there's some kind of heroic uh, virtue associated with going it alone, you know, bowling alone. <laughs> but um, I, would, I would just want to suggest to this person that um, we weren't made to read Scripture alone. From the very beginning, the Scriptures have been addressed to a community, and I think the purpose for Scripture, this is Old and New Testament, is to, is to uh, in many and various ways, shape a people for God's treasured possession, a holy nation. And so that actually, Carl, is why I've emphasized in the book the idea of gospel citizenship as much as I do. You, to be a, a follower of Jesus, 
means you belong to a people. You're a citizen of the gospel. You're a citizen of the city of God. And the thing about cities <laughs> is that there are other people in them. Um, and so I, I, I would think to some extent, the, even the idea that I can read the Bible on my own already indicates you haven't understood what it's about. <laughs> yeah. it's, not, it's not about an individual's relationship with God. I mean, it is that, but it, it's really primarily about God's plan to form a holy nation uh, in the midst of unholy nations, uh, to be his own people, a light to the world. And the other thing I would say is, well, you know, we talk about virtues, I suppose. The, the heretic in church history is the one who is always stubbornly choosing to go his or her own way. You don't want to even put yourself in the position of walking the heretic's way. And then also, Paul, again, if you're reading the test, the, the Bible, there's, it's clear that Paul has, that the risen Christ has given the church pastors and teachers precisely to shepherd individual members of the flock. So, again, you, you, it's the idea that you can read the Bible on your own or that this should be normative, at least, uh, that seems to fly in the face of the actual content of Scripture. So I would just say you're not beginning well. Yeah. That reminds me of something John Webster wrote, that the gospel is ecclesial. I just really... Yes. Really yeah, they, I think, and you could mean several things by that, but, but one thing I would want to mean is the church isn't simply a herald of the gospel. The church is part of the content of the gospel because... The good news is that this wall of opposition separating synagogue from local church, Jew from Gentile and so on, that wall has come down in Christ. So to some extent, the fact that we are a new humanity in Christ uh, and that this new humanity has local representation in local churches, that's part of the good news. And that's another reason, by the way, why individuals shouldn't go off on their own it's hard to do Christianity uh, you know, by yourself. <laughs> you, can't, you can't demonstrate forgiveness, for example, and uh, you know, one person, you need someone else to, to make forgiveness possible, at least one other. Yeah. You know, just in a, in a re related uh, question then, um, having grown up in broad but conservative, but, but broad evangelicalism. One of the things that I never really saw much of a connection to or was taught really any kind of a connection to is the, the connection between uh, discipleship or being, you know, being discipled and, and the church's actual gatherings, what goes on when we gather as a church in worship, <clears throat> the connection with, with the liturgy and, and the preaching of the church. Um, you know, discipleship was for me that thing that happened when you left and, it, you know, on a, on a Tuesday morning when you met with a group of guys or, or your discipler, you know, met with you later in the week, you know, the guy, you know, who was trained by nav, you know, navigators or that kind of, that's what discipleship was. But I never really had a category that the actual things that God has called the church to do in its gatherings were actually intended to, you know, make disciples. It kind of explain a little bit in terms of what you write in this book about about the role of the church's liturgy. Right. Well, um, yeah, so maybe, Todd, you and I can start a class action suit. 
against uh, the evangelical churches that didn't communicate that to us exactly. when we were growing up, because that was very much my experience as well. And to some extent, it's my, you know, it's, it's a present happening, that is, that, uh, you know, people think they're going to church to worship, and it's not always clear to me what worship means, but uh, in Romans 12, 1, Paul says we're to present our bodies as a living sacrifice, which is your spiritual worship. And that text, I think, is important. It's connected also to the idea of transform, being transformed by the renewal of our minds. But I, I think this is about discipleship. You know, Romans 12, 1 and 2 is about discipleship. So, yeah, I, I do think that formation, that is the pro one aspect of the process of making disciples, should be happening in our what we call our worship services. And I also argue that all churches are liturgical to some extent, if, if by liturgy we simply mean the form our worship takes. It can't simply be formless. It has to have some minimal kind of form, at least a time limit. So the point is, in engaging with our bodies every Sunday morning and with our minds doing certain things in our worship service, that itself is formative. And I make a plea with pastors to use this time in formative ways because the rest of the week, what's forming their congregant spirits is, is simply culture. <laughs> and um, I, I, I think I feel strongly about this, that spiritual formation is happening most of the time outside church. And that's not a good thing. Now, Christian spiritual formation is happening in church, but, but our spirits can be formed outside of church very easily. You know, I think we can be made, for example, into worrisome, anxious spirits who, you know, are concerned about their status anxiety, or we can be made into consumerist spirits who always need more to feel satisfied. Uh, our culture is in the business of spiritual formation. I think pastors need to say that to their congregations too. And so what, what happens during a worship service, what, during what we call this liturgical formation, is that we have a little bit of a chance <laughs> to, to offer a different kind of formation, a more intentional formation and we need to make the most of these precious minutes that we have together as a gathered assembly. Yeah, it's good. Well, it's been a real pleasure speaking to, to you, uh, Kevin, uh, about your new book, Hearers and Doers. And uh, uh, thank you very much for all the work that you've done. And before we close, I'd like to, to recommend a couple of other books by Professor Van Hooser. If there's anybody listening who's not come across his work before, two books that I personally have found very helpful and very stimulating over the years. Uh, is there a meaning in this text? Probably about 20 years old now, I would guess, Kevin, that book. Yeah, but a very, very helpful book addressing issues of, you know, the simple question, does a text mean something? Does it have a legitimate range of meanings? Very, very important, I think, when we come to uh, read the Bible to have some idea of, uh, of how texts operate. And that book is an extremely helpful. And also more recently, uh, I mentioned this earlier in the podcast, a biblical authority after Babel, which is the published form of some lectures you gave, uh, I think our mutual friends, the, the uh, Mark Thompson and co over in uh, uh, Moore College in, in Sydney 
Australia, which addresses some similar themes to uh, hearers and doers and is there a meaning in this text, but in a very uh, accessible and down-to-earth way. Uh, if you're listening and would like uh, a chance to win a copy of Hearers and Doers, the book uh, we've been discussing, uh, please visit our website, mortificationspin.org, where you'll have an opportunity to to enter a draw to, to win a copy. And while you're there, if the Spirit leads you so to do, please do click on the donation button. We are a listener-supported podcast uh, and would appreciate uh, any uh, financial support you're able to give us. We look forward to being with you next week. Thanks for listening to Mortification of Spin, a podcast of the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. Let's keep this short so none of us gets burned out. Please read the blog, please subscribe, please leave a donation. And there's this next week. When you come to to something like the Enneagram, it looks to me as if you're injecting the critical problems of self-reflection. Now, I've never taken one of these personality tests, but I tell you, if I did, at the back of my mind, wouldn't be so much, uh, who do I think I am, but what answer do I need to give in order to get the job that I want to get? That's next time on Mortification of Spin. parlor game and that kind of thing fine but i mean the writer here talks about myers-briggs you know Mm -hmm. for a long time and still to a certain extent people are hiring and firing based upon personality type. before i took the job at um church of the savior in philadelphia they wanted me to take the myers-briggs and i said no i said no he could have saved himself a lot of heartache